This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist and we've been doing self work now for six and a half years. I wanted to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who are already interested in psychological or emotional issues. Maybe you're in therapy, but also to those of you who might be looking for answers. Maybe you're wondering if something's wrong or you're having a problem that you might like to develop a little more insight around. But also to a third group of you, to those of you who think mental health treatment or therapy is kind of wackadoodle, (laughs) I'm here to talk to you about that and see what you think after you listen to Self Work. We've got a couple of fantastic interviews for you this week, as I'm honored to speak at a couple of meetings, one for clinicians about what I'm terming perfectly hidden addiction, and one for a group of construction workers on hidden depression and the movement to recognize suicidal thinking as a normal human response to something that feels intolerably painful. But more on that later. In fact, we've been talking about that here on Self Work in the last couple of episodes. I love it when an author reaches out to me themselves, and that's what Brooke Syme did. I didn't have to talk with a bunch of publicity or marketing people. She knows exactly what her message is and who needs to hear it. Plus, I was mesmerized by her writing, her actual writing. She's a really evocative author, and her book is worth the read for that fact alone. The name of her book is called May Cause Side Effects. It's the first memoir on antidepressant withdrawal to hit the mass market, a notable milestone in the journey to bring global awareness to antidepressant withdrawal, actually withdrawal from any medication, but especially in this instance, antidepressants. Not everyone on antidepressants wants to stay on them forever, and it's imperative that both patients and doctors recognize that antidepressant withdrawal can be tough, and then the doctor practice safe, what she calls deprescribing. I couldn't agree more. It takes time. Nobody should go off cold turkey. Her mission is also to shift the narrative of depression as a chronic ailment to one that frames depression as a temporary human experience. And certainly that can be true. I think both are true, but certainly maybe there's more emphasis, especially in advertising on take a med because you're depressed. Let's make sure no one is hearing you shouldn't be on any depressants. That's not the case. They can be very helpful. But there are side effects often, and getting off of them can be very difficult for some people. It's hard to tell in Brooke's memoir how much her own chaotic upbringing led to many of her experiences when she was withdrawing and what was actual withdrawal. So I do think you have to take that with a grain of salt. But I've had many clients tell me that getting off some med or another has taken them quite a long time. Here's a fun fact. She was also a Food Network Chopped champion, and we talk about that, and actually competed on the show while in antidepressant withdrawal. She can be found all over the internet at Brooke Syme, that's B-R-O-O-K-E-S-I-E-M, and I think you'll thoroughly enjoy her interview. First, let's hear from one of our wonderful sponsors who, when you buy their products, that helps me defray the costs of self-work. Plus, I use the products and think they're great. This sponsor is Athletic Greens, and I take them every morning. 
What better time than now to decide that you're going to do something for yourself in 2023 that will only add to your sense of well-being, where you can begin every single day with an act of true self-care, not a bubble bath, not even a therapy session, but by drinking one glass full of 75 high-quality minerals, vitamins, probiotics, adaptogens, and whole food source superfoods, which support everything from your gut to your immune system to your energy level. I use it every day and love this habit because if you're like me, self-care can get lost in a day full of kids, work, meals, and whatever else comes along. AG1 knows that people who listen to self-work are seeking to make their lives better. So Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. Become your own green machine in the first hour you're up and around. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash self-work. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash self-work to take ownership of your health in 2023 and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And now, here's the interview with Brooke Syme on May Cause Side Effects. Brooke, I just told you that, welcome to Self Work, by the way, I just told you that I spent the whole ride from Northwest Arkansas to LA to visit our son and LA back home and reading your book. And I was, I was really mesmerized by it. I think it's one of the most different books I've ever read. I don't think I can compare it to anything that I've read recently, at least. Oh, well, thank you for that. I, I really spent a long time crafting it. So it was as much about the craft of the book for me as it was about the message. Well, it's it shows. I mean, I have things dog-eared in here that I want to talk to you about because some of the explanations are so beautiful. But tell self-work listeners a little bit about who you are and the, the name of the book is May Cause Side Effects. And um, tell us what made you write the book. Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So... <laughs> So my name is Brooke Seam, and I am the author of May Cause Side Effects, and it is the first memoir on antidepressant withdrawal to hit the consumer market. So that's a really important thing because antidepressant withdrawal is something that affects a huge amount of people, yes, it does. but there has not been a ton of press or even awareness of it in the, in the mainstream. And so this book feels like one of the first steps in getting this to be a more recognized thing and to help both prescribers understand what antidepressant withdrawal can look like, to help patients under dis- understand what it can feel like, and also to know that somebody else has been through it. And at the end of the day, it's a book about hope. It's a book about recovery because uh, antidepressant withdrawal can last for a very long time for people and it's an extremely lonely place to be. And so I know that I'm wasn't sure I was going to get out of it in the year that my book takes place. Mm-hmm. And so effectively, I wrote the book I wish I'd had at that time. Well, I, it is it is really a vital reference for people. I, I remember the first person who told me that it took seven years for them to get off of Clonopin, for example. And another young man comes to mind that, gosh, this was so early in my practice and the doctor had put him on Effexor, which I now, well, 
somebody might get mad at me in the pharmaceutical world, but Effexor has, for many people, has bad side effects uh-huh. and very difficult to get off of for most people. And uh, I remember he said, I had these brain zaps mm-hmm. and I had to go look it up. And I mm-hmm. sure enough, you know, there they were. And so, but I didn't know about them. Yeah. And so you're right. I think that the vast majority of people don't understand that these things can really, I mean, and you, you point out at the end of the book, don't go to cold turkey for sure. Uh, in fact, there's a way to do it that's at least the safest. But now you're you are also a writer, correct? Yes, yes. And that shows. <laughs> <laughs> so the, another thread that, or a major thread through your book, was your relationship with your dad and your mom. Yeah. And I am always interested in family and how they how they affected who you are, and and you write some beautiful things about it. But tell us a little bit about your growing up. Sure. I grew up in Reno, Nevada. You know, pretty typical suburban middle-class background. I was was the only child of um, a couple of bill collectors and (laughs) ethical (laughs) bill collectors. I mean, my mom is a light. If you read the book, she's just the most, she's kind of like a fairy come down to earth. She's just this very ascended soul and she just loves everyone and she sees the good in everything and she it's hard to see her as a bill collector <laughs> I, I well i know but she created this unbelievable company where it was like everybody was being helped it wasn't about you know it wasn't the traditional we're gonna we're gonna screw you and take your wages it was more like how do we help you out of this so she really uh, took wow the light and so they worked together and, you know, it was it was fairly standard growing up. And then my father suddenly passed away when I was 15. So he had pancreatic cancer, but we didn't know he had it. And so he went in for an ulcer surgery and never came out. And yeah. yeah. Well, you said that, though, it was fairly usual growing up, but your dad had a temper and he had some strange. Oh, well, yeah. Home strange. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> can you describe him to us? I Sure. Sounded almost haunted in some ways. Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of one of those things where when you lose a parent in, as a teenager, there's I never knew him as an adult. So there's so many questions that I have. And, you know, my mom knows some of them, but, you know, his the whole side of the family has gone now, too. So he's still a little bit of an enigma to me. But he was very much a barrel of a man, you know, kind of a bull in a china shop type person. He had this huge heart. And if you accepted him for who he was, he was just, he could make you laugh until you cry. And he was a teddy bear. And I always felt so loved by him. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, he had this unbelievable temper and almost rage at the, for just for being alive. It's like, he didn't want to be here. And so that always came out. It was never directed at me personally. So I kind of grew up with it thinking it was normal. Because it, I, I was never, you know, hit or hurt in any way, but I would see, you know, the garbage cans getting hit and hurt and, you know, the washing machine. And so it was very cacophonous growing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I think that I very much internalized a lot of that. And, you know, it's hard to separate, you know, what the nurture versus nature here. But in either case, I think I was probably born with a lot of that anger as well and also saw it as a normal expression of the deep emotion. And, but then I was not really allowed to feel that, you know, when my, when he died so suddenly, and then I was so suddenly put on a cocktail of antidepressants. It's like all of that emotion was just squashed and numbed away. 
And that was one of the biggest challenges of withdrawal for me was this huge amount of rage that came up and just the terror of that because I had never really felt that before. Right, right. And you you asked the question a lot because you were having these very emotional and actually um, sometimes psychotic experiences mm-hmm. of of coming off the drugs. And you would say, wait a minute, is this me? Is this mm-hmm. withdrawal? I mean, that you question keeps coming up. Mm-hmm. And you, you touched on some of the stuff, I mean, because your dad's father had also had a lot of yeah. emotional outbursts and, and it yeah. thrown him into the fire, I think, at one point, mm-hmm. something like that. And so you're talking about the jargon for it in psychology is transgenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. But I loved this definition of it. So for anyone who's reading the book, mm-hmm. it's on page 138. You say, at least now I'm no longer scared. I know this part of me exists. I know I wasn't so much born with it as much I was born of it. This remembering etched not only into me, but into the tender soul of every human who ever was and ever will be. I know the deepest cavern of my mind is filled with the horror and pain and sorrow of everything that came before me. I just loved that definition or that description, not a definition, that description of what transgenerational trauma can find like that. It is, you were born of it, not Mm -hmm. with it. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I often think that, you know, a more philosophical definition of depression could be a remembering, like a cellular remembering of everything that's happened to humanity and the earth. And I, I think that, for particularly sensitive people to you, you walk around the world and you feel it, you, you feel this pain that's always there, even if something has never directly happened to you, or maybe it happened a long time ago. And I find that if we can sort of acknowledge that we carry that with us, it can it at least really help me get out of the depression aspect of this because I realized it wasn't my responsibility to carry. Mm-hmm. What you talked about a lot was going to places, I mean, you traveled all over the world and you would feel the pain of those places so evocatively that it, it was just horrific for you. And I I hadn't thought about this, but when we, we were lucky enough to go to Sicily mm-hmm. back in October and we went up to these um, these places where they would have the gladiator fights. And my husband was looking all around and is this interesting? And I just felt this horrible sadness yeah. and pain. Yeah. And I, I mean, and I'm not particularly sensitive to that kind of thing as you are. But I just remember thinking this is a monument to people being horrific toward other people. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I was, I guess I wasn't much fun, but you know what? I, <laughs> I, could, I couldn't be anything different. And I think yep. you had those experiences over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And I was in places that were so well known for terrible things, you know, genocide, you know, Cambodia or the Balkans. And so I was so aware of it. But when you think about you know, I mean, I'm in kind of a deserty area too here in Reno. But if you, if I think of, I don't know what happened here. You know, 200 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think that it's if we can have this experience in a place where we know atrocities have occurred, we can also have it in places where we don't consciously know that something has occurred, but it has, right? And then if you have, you know, a teenager or a kid who's really sensitive, and maybe they're picking that up, and they don't. But no one knows, right? I just, to me, it kind of explains a little bit of the kind of ephemeral, questionable nature of this, where why some people, you know, feel so afflicted and others don't. I mean, 
we can debate that all day long, but I like this idea because it allows me to, it just allows me to release a little bit that it's not me. It's, Mm -hmm. it's the world. I'm a vessel that the energy is coming through and I can process it and release it, but I don't have to hold it. And if I don't know why I don't need to know, I can just know that it is and let that go. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the decision to write this book. (laughs) <laughs> so that's a funny story. I was thinking about this morning, that this morning, actually. So, you know, I had spent 15 years on all of these antidepressants from 15 to 30. And during that time, I was still deeply depressed. So when you're in that state of chronic depression for so long, no kind of becomes the default. You're just used to saying or thinking no to everything, even if it's not fully conscious. And so what I started to realize is that as I was going through withdrawal, and by that point I was traveling around the world, my default to everything was no because. And I started to realize that, you know, I had this year of travel. And as you'd very uh, purposefully taken for this. Exactly. It was very purposeful. So I had about a year and around nine months in, it just dawned on me. I was in Canada, Vancouver, Canada at the time. It just dawned on me that I was spending the majority of my time traveling around in whatever apartment I was in the city I was in doing puzzles. Now, I love puzzles, so I'm not going to knock them too hard. But the bottom line is I wasn't thriving or really taking advantage of this opportunity. And I didn't know how to kind of create opportunity for myself or to go out there. And because I'm I'm pretty introverted, I don't you know, I'm not just going to go fraternize at a bar with strangers. That's not really me. So what was I supposed to do? I was traveling alone at that point. So I decided that I was going to say yes to literally every yes or no question that came my way, regardless <laughs> of the question, for uh, about 100 days. And I was I was blogging about it at the time. And it was very, very structured in the sense that I had rules. You know, I couldn't say yes to anything that would ruin me financially or, you know, like I couldn't get a face tattoo if someone dared me to do it. <laughs> like I wouldn't do anything illegal. You know, there were kind of your general rules, but then everything else I had to say yes to as simple from do you want cream and sugar in your coffee, which I typically don't take sugar in my coffee to you know, someone asked for change on the street to do you want to go to Chile? Like, I just I said, I'm going to say yes. And I wrote about it. And so uh, this this experience ultimately profoundly changed my life. I didn't realize it at the time. Most of the decisions were fairly benign, you know, very small things. But there were two that really mattered. The, the first is um, I said yes to a date I didn't want to go on, which securiously put me in a five-year-long relationship that followed. (laughs) (laughs) The second thing was, is I had had a literary agent from my previous life because I owned a bakery in New York and we had a cookbook and I was chatting with this literary agent and she kind of said, you could write about this experience. Like, what if you write about, write about this and I'll try and sell it. Would you do that? And I remember sitting there and I just said, oh God, (laughs) Yes, yes. And so I started writing this book because of this, you know, little experiment I did. And Mm -hmm. yeah, and uh, that was five years before it got published. So there was a whole bunch of stuff that happened in between deciding to write a book and writing this book. It 
this book that you can buy on the shelf. This is not the book I set out to write. Yeah, I know it that. kind of came up. But once it came up, I kind of said, oh, this is the book I need to write. I started to see a little bit of, you know, coverage in the mainstream media about antidepressant withdrawal. And I started to say, okay, I think this topic is going to grow over time. And I'm going to be the one to write this book. And I need to do it before somebody else does. So I did it. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of the book Pathological, and I've got oh, Sarah Fay is her. Mm. I interviewed her several months ago, and she was pointing out that she had received like seven different diagnoses, all with their accompanying medication mm-hmm. over her lifetime. And finally, she went to a psychiatrist, and he looked at her, and rather than giving her her eighth diagnosis, said, "I don't really know what's wrong with you." And or what's happening with you. And she wrote this book about how so much of it was wrong and so much of the medication yeah. was just thrown at her and and she was left on it with you know, it, it so there's a yeah. if you don't know the book, it would be an interesting book for you to look at because yeah. she is trying to sort of the same a similar hue and cry about yeah. we need to look more carefully at this mental health system. And, you know, I, I went to a program what I was in graduate school thirty years ago now, but I was very surprised, and she was surprised to hear how they did talk about the subjectivity of diagnoses mm-hmm. and the subjectivity of, even though we weren't weren't uh, psychiatrists of, of medication usage and that kind of thing. So, in fact, they had us read "I'm Dancing as Fast as I Can," which was a book about benzodiazepine re- withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was very popular, made into a movie and all this kind of thing. So, I think it was an unusual program because of that. Yeah. I mean, I certainly don't hear much about withdrawal from talked about from doctors like when I when I'm able to have a candid conversation with them about this, Mm -hmm. which isn't always. But when I'm able to have it, I ask them about their medical school experience and they, you know, there's no real classes on deep prescribing. I mean, some will say I might have had a couple hours in a lecture once, but I just think it's at the point now where. You know, it really takes a doctor who is going to go out of their own way to engage in continuing education, to listen to their patients, if their patients bring research to them and say, well, what about this? Like, I know what the standard of care is, what the standard protocol is, but what about all this other research that says that's not correct? Like, if you can't have that conversation with your doctor, I think it's time to to fire your doctor. Right. So was there an event... That, that you said, I've got to get off these? Was there something that triggered that desire to, I know the answer yeah. because I read the book, but I think it's interesting. Yeah. You know, it was, it was a very, uh, it was an unremarkable moment in a way. And in other ways, it was very remarkable. You know, I had been on, it had been 15 years of these antidepressants and I was getting worse. I mean, I was more and more depressed as the years went by. Suicidal thoughts were daily and common to the point where I didn't even think it was anything to be concerned about. I mean, it was was part of my personality as my brown hair at that point. And uh, I had, I had taken to, I lived on the 30th floor. I had taken to pushing the screen out of my window and just staring at the sidewalk and really thinking about my options and it didn't scare me at all. And I was so numbed out at that point. So just, I just stood so flat that I just remember looking down and I was looking at the traffic patterns in the sidewalk and, you know, not going to mince words, thinking about jumping. 
And then all of a sudden it occurred to me and I said, I shouldn't be this depressed on this many antidepressants. Right. And I just kind of said, huh, I wonder if they're not working or maybe the there's a, I have a contributing who factor. Am who am I if I'm not on antidepressants? Yeah. And that question was, was just all of a sudden sort of a new mm -hmm. thought to you. Mm -hmm. Because I was put on these drugs before puberty. Sure. So I had not really spent an entire, a single unmedicated moment in my entire adult life. I, I realized I had no frame of reference for who I was outside of the 14-year-old whose dad was still alive, right? And so that's kind of the moment, that was the next thought that came in pretty much. And I pulled myself back in from my window and I just, you know, there was there was a seismic shift, but nothing was different. And I just said, okay, well, I at least need to these drugs aren't working. So I thought maybe I needed different ones, but I, but I had the sense to say, I think I need to know what my baseline is as an adult, because I don't like the same things. I don't listen to the same music or wear the same clothes at 15 as I do now. So why am I on the same medication and why hasn't this been changed? Like my brain has got to be different and more mature and developed. So right. I figured a baseline was the way to go. What I didn't know was that, I thought it would be a matter of, you know, cutting my dosages in half for a week or two, hanging out without any drugs for a month and then saying, OK, what what's the next process? I didn't realize that what was about to happen is that I was going to end up in severe withdrawal for over a year because of these drugs. So my assumption of what was going to happen was very, very wrong. But the instinct was just to try and figure out. Well, really, I mean, really, who the hell am I without these drugs? I don't know. So has you have you come down to the conclusion? Because, again, you ask the question a lot in the book, how much of this is withdrawal and how much of this is mm -hmm. me finally having to feel what I'm feeling, mm -hmm. and experience what I'm experiencing and without the medication? You know, in retrospect and looking now, um, withdrawal was very specific and a lot of people ask me this, you know, they say, well, how do I know if I'm having a relapse or if I actually, you know, ha I'm having another problem or if it's withdrawal? And in my case and, you know, the cases that that I, you know, and the people I talk to, the general assumption is, well, did this start when you when you stopped taking the drugs? Yeah. And then in some cases, people say, well, if you reinstate, if you go back on a little bit of it, does it go away? I never reinstated, so I never got to test that. But it was a night and day difference from pretty much the day, you know, if I took my last drug on a Monday and then didn't have one on a Tuesday, like there was a world of difference that happened. So I knew for sure. And now, especially having been so many years out of it, I'm now six years since I've taken my last um, antidepressant. I, I see such a difference between my day to day now and my day to day and withdrawal that I know what withdrawal was specifically. Got it. The caveat of that, though, is that I also started doing very, very deep emotional work that I had not done previously. I was so what ask you about Alan. Yeah. So what I don't know is, had I not done that work, how much I might be stuck in the you know emotional volatility of post SSRI, post SNRI life. Uh, that I don't know, but that's because I did so much emotional work. Tell us about heard. Alan and how you came upon Alan and yeah. and his teachings about, well, just to put it simply, probably oversimplifying it, about self-compassion. And you said, yeah. I don't even know what that means. What do you mean, compassion? What do you mean? Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> I didn't have compassion for yourself. What is that sorcery? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
So I, I very much struggled with traditional therapy or talk therapy. And a big reason was because I had a lot of memory loss from the time period that my father died and I was medicated. So mm-hmm. I just kind of struggled to connect or go through your standard protocols when I couldn't actually remember anything from that period of time. It was infuriating to me. It was infuriating to anyone I would work with. And so I just gave up. And so within withdrawal, I'd say about three months in, was probably the peak where kind of all the physical side effects, the cognitive side effects, the psychological side effects, and the emotional side effects were all going on all at once. And it was to the point where I was, I just was barely functioning in day-to-day life because I was so, I was so angry. I I didn't trust myself to really be in public because I always just felt like I was about to snap. And it just, I I knew I needed some help. Mm -hmm. And around that time, my mom had, been, you know, we have the context here is that she's an angel on earth. So she had been listening to some podcast that, you know, she'd probably never listened to before. And there, there, this man was Alan. And she just called me and she said, I, you know, I think you should contact him. I, it just feels like he might help. And, Mm -hmm. and I was open at that point. I mean, when you're so desperate, you will do anything, even if it seems like the most out of left field wackadoodle thing. So I, I contacted him and his website, you know, very kind of like, there are a lot of buzzwords like, you know, miracles and transformational transformation and, you know, all these things where I was just looking at it and saying to myself, well, that's a load of crap, but whatever, I'm desperate. And I, and I ended up talking to him and, and the, our entire, um, our entire relationship ended up being remote over the phone well before that was, you know, a thing. But for me, that was so important because I didn't, like sitting in front of someone and kind of seeing their facial reactions to what I was saying. So mm-hmm. this put a huge barrier in between us. Also, I was safe in my own apartment, which was important because I didn't necessarily feel safe to go out into the world. So I got to start in my apartment and end in my apartment and then immediately go, you know, sleep or whatever I needed to do. So that was also really important. But more than that is, you know, he sort of blended Eastern and Western modalities together. So And in the end, it ended up being this very self-compassion based therapy where we would he would kind of intuit what needed to be said. And I would repeat it back and we would work with the metaphorical images in my mind or the symbols as opposed to a rooted memory that had actually occurred. And so because of the memory loss, that was so important because always what came in for me was it seemed like I was reading a fantasy novel in my head. Mm hmm. So to be able to work with those images as opposed to let's talk about the 15 year old Brooke and how sad she was. Right. Which I couldn't connect to his process really allowed me to connect and start processing all of the emotion and grief that I really had never been able to process. You're quoting him. He says, my belief is that we go piece by piece. We examine the broken piece, heal it with our own compassion and put the fixed piece back in. Then we take another piece, we pull it out, and we work with it. Eventually, there becomes a cumulative benefit, an acceleration process, like putting a puzzle together. Mm -hmm. You know, that reminded me of the Japanese kintsugi practice where they take something that's broken and put gold where the the broken pieces are. That just, I got this image of kintsugi, I'm probably crucifying the word, but. Yeah, I had that image a lot, too. I, I almost like, I think I almost titled it something along those lines but that didn't happen but it was always on my mind yeah and i think it's true i mean 
Do you still work with Alan? You know, I don't work with him um, anymore. He's now, he doesn't really work with people one-on-one anymore, but he trained a bunch of practitioners all over the world. So I still will sometimes work with uh, one of the practitioners he trained in the process. And my mother now works in this process too, after seeing what happened to me. So it's kind of cool. I get to see her just have this huge positive transformational effect on the people that she works for or with because of this experience I had and it's got a little mother daughter duo going on. (laughs) Well, I, when I was reading the book and then your relationship with Alan came along and what I liked about it, I mean, I've been a therapist for 30 years and, but what I liked about it is that there were things that needed to happen internally Mm-hmm. You were talking a lot about your experiences out in the world and on all these different countries and handling the, gosh, the chaos of, I don't even know a better word than that. Um, That's the right word. Okay. <laughs> of, you know, what was going on with you physically, somatically. I mean, just, um, I mean, just trying to refine, rediscover yourself, you know, but it was nice because it, to me, it points out that you weren't alone, that you sought someone as a, and his voice was like a, something you could come back to. Yep. And um, I know he went out of the country one time where he, there was an earthquake or something where he was. Yeah, a hurricane came through. Yeah, and, and he yeah. wasn't available. And But by that time, I think you, you were okay. But it was a, he was just like a, a beam, like a, just something you could grasp to make sure. And because I'm a firm believer in, in reaching out for help when you need it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, not necessarily through medication, but yeah. uh, now I want to point out for anybody who's on medication, who's listening to this, you're not saying, Oh, you shouldn't be on medication. Uh, yeah. I, well, my work is particularly around withdrawal. So, right. you know, I, there's a lot I would change about our system in the way we medicate people if I was in charge. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is, is that there are some people who want to stay on these drugs forever. And there are some people who don't. And for the people who don't, we have to be able to pull them off safely and we have to empower them and trust that they know what's best for them. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of gaslighting in this industry about whether or not people should be medicated. But at the end of the day, like I think, you have to respect the patient. You have to respect what they want. And, you know, I've, I've fought all of this and I'm just so glad that I had the strength to push through because withdrawal is the hardest thing I've ever been through. And it was also the greatest gift and teacher I've ever experienced. And my life now is what I always thought it could be, what I wanted it to be, but I had to work for it and I had to go against traditional, the traditional system in order to actually get here. And it shouldn't be that hard. It just shouldn't be that harm, hard, nor should 15-year-olds be medicated indefinitely and no one follows up on it. I mean, there's so many problems here, but we need to be able to take people off these drugs safely. Sure. And we just don't know how, and it, the information is not out there right now. There are some doctors who are very, very aware of it and guide their patients through it but it's not the norm for certain no my experience it's not the norm and it's a pretty recent shift i mean even when i started writing the book in 2017 it was far less available this information was far less available than it is now my frustration now though is that we do have researchers who are working on this and they're doing great work 
And so this shouldn't be happening. But I still hear every day some doctors tossed someone on or pulled someone off some absurd high dose of whatever drug and these people are just suffering. And it's just makes me want to pull my hair out because the research is there. We have it. It's good research. You can go to Google Scholar or PubMed and find it or Twitter. It's like right there. It's I can understand it. I'm not a researcher. Like it's not that difficult to understand either. So why is this not spreading like wildfire? I don't understand. Well, I can talk to <laughs> about that myself. Right. And then like the reality is I do kind of understand because it's being squashed and blah, blah, blah. But uh, and people are in pain and I know it's all just tricky, but there's hope out there for people who want to get off these drugs and there's way to do it, ways sure. to do it. Well, I think your book is a wonderful example of what can happen, but also, I mean, it's a, it's a very, I don't want to call it entertaining. It's, it's a learning. I felt like I was learning as I read. And it was also, you write so beautifully and, and just, I could picture uh, exactly where you were and, and who you were with and what was happening inside of you and outside of you. And that was very unexpected. You know, yeah. when, oh, was this is going to be about side effects and blah, 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 blah. So it was just a lovely. Well, I'm glad it was entertaining. It's supposed to be like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, well you know, it's it was still it's a story. <laughs> it, you know, it wasn't like funny, ha ha entertaining, but, but it, yeah. there were some funny parts. I mean, you're yeah. you and the motorcycle, for example. <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah, it was, and the scuba was, diving and all that stuff was like yeah. <laughs> I designed it and wrote it with the intention of having there be a lot of tension and good storytelling right yeah. the best causes are told through storytelling so I wanted this to stick with people and yeah I think even if you're not interested in the topic it's worth a read because it's a good book oh it's about traveling around the world and and, and what kind of experiences you can have and yeah, I didn't know whether I was going to go to Kuala Lumpur or not. <laughs> you know, I would definitely think about it before I went. Not, not my favorite place. place. Yeah, not my favorite place, but a lot of people Thank loved it. Thank you so very much. And we should throw in that through all this, you also won Chopped. <laughs> sort of your I did, yes. Thing. Yeah, my day job is a chef. I... Uh, Sometimes, again, I feel like I'm in some little alternate universe because I, I have these really often difficult, hard conversations with people about this topic. And then, then I go downstairs and make cookies. It's just it's yeah. kind of nice, but also a little weird. Um, so, yeah, I still work as a chef because that's how I pay my bills. You know, being writers aren't exactly known for their riches. So I work as a chef and I was the Food Network Chop Champion, season 32, episode six. I was in withdrawal. Yeah, I was in withdrawal at the time. So it's actually, I think, interesting if you read the book and then go watch the episode to kind of see a little bit if you can tell what was going on Mm -hmm. or not. Mm -hmm. Um, My mom says that she could tell what was going on, but that I'm a very good actress. So. Well, I'll have to go watch it and see what it what it's like. But anyway, because I love Chopped as many people do. Thank you so much. I know you're busy, Brooke. Thank you. I uh, I thoroughly uh, recommend the book to anybody who's either been on antidepressants, is thinking about going on antidepressants, uh, and again, just anyone who wants to read this very rich story of of you you becoming stable and. Yeah making peace with so much of yourself. I would also really encourage that parents of tweens and teens Mm -hmm. read this book because I know that that is such a constant thing that they're facing is, is whether or not medicating their child is the right choice. And there's a lot of reflection in the sense that we know 
you know, my mom and I talk about this a lot. We we would have made different choices had we know what we know now. Mm-hmm. So I think that this book is unique and that it kind of can show one timeline from that choice that we didn't know. But um, I've heard from a lot of parents that they're they're glad they read it of young of young people. So I would- we should also point out it doesn't always happen. I mean, I've been on yep. any presents twice and I didn't have any problem yep. getting off of them at all. Yep. So you can't guarantee on that kind of experience, but you mm-hmm. can't guarantee mine either. Yeah. So- there you go. And it's about 50-50, the research says. So it's it's a little bit of a coin flip. And I just think uh, informed consent. Yeah. True informed consent where people have an understanding of all of the possibilities is what we need here. And I hope that my book helps fill that gap a little. Thank you so very much. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Uh-huh. Thanks again so much for being here. I know that you have a lot of podcasts you could be listening to, and I'm very, very honored that you're here at Self Work. Tell your friends, tell people that you think need therapy. <laughs> maybe those people are your friends, maybe they aren't. You can subscribe at drmargaretrutherford.com, or you can subscribe where you listen and leave a rating or review. That's always incredibly appreciated. Thanks again for being here. I'll be with you again this week with another wonderful interview and a very different kind of interview for self-work. I'll be interested to see what you think. Please take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.